This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Madison, and Madison was married to an abusive addict. It's a story of pedestals, isolation, overwhelm, escalation points, and self-defense. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Madison. How are you? I'm fine. How about yourself? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And if you want to be a guest like Madison is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today there is a content warning for this episode as we do discuss physical abuse and extreme intimidation. So that is a content warning for you right there. Also, we do discuss neurodivergence when it comes to Madison's dad, and no one here is trying to demonize those with neurodivergence. It's just a part of the story. And today's story is one that takes a long time to be seen. When you're an agreeable person, sometimes you don't know what lurks beneath someone until life events really change everything and you throw addiction on top of all of that over a long period of time without abuse and things can get really confusing. So a big thank you to Madison for being here uh, with us today and now I'm just going to get out of my way in your way. Madison, the floor is now yours. I really appreciate getting to do this because to be honest there's a very like limited amount of people I can talk about this with right now, I have like my support group at the local um, like domestic violence shelter, but um, right now I'm pretty isolated. <laughs> I'm stuck in like divorce limbo where I can't move to where all my family and friends are. So it's just, there's not a lot of people. So um, I can tell you a little bit about my background, kind of how I got to my situation. I know that's the drill. So feel free to guide me if necessary. Um, I was raised in like a bigger city and like a normal family. I mean, like normal-ish as normal can be. I had piano lessons, you know, like all the things that, um, like opportunities. I was really like sensitive as a kid. I had a lot of, um, meltdowns and I cried a lot. Like I just was a very, um, I picked up on a lot of stuff as a kid. And, you know, in my childhood, I ended up finding music. I, I'm a pianist now. I'm a piano teacher. But that was the thing that, you know, kind of helped me cope through all my stuff. Um, but growing up, you know, my family, they had some normal issues. But my brother, he had a chronic illness that caused a lot of tension in my family. Um, but the main thing I think that sticks out for me from my childhood and affects like how I got here is my dad. I just don't think he's wired like other people. I think he's honestly neurodivergent. And um, 
this is something that I'm just starting to get some awareness about. But he just, he didn't really understand uh, romantic relationships. And him and my mom just really had a lot of issues. A really weird relationship. I never saw them show affection to each other. Um, one time I saw my dad give her a kiss like on Valentine's Day. And it was very like forced. <laughs> and like my sister and I would have to like remind him of, you know, like, hey, your anniversary's coming up. You should do something. Like, let's go to the mall and get something for mom. Like, it's not that he didn't want to do this. It's just like, he just didn't really have an awareness that this was necessary. It wasn't his love language. His love language is like building a deck for my mom. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, he's just different. So I don't know if I had a really good understanding of what a healthy relationship looked like. And I feel like my standards for relationships stemmed off of that relationship, of course, but I just, I didn't really care about being wined and dined. I just had really low standards, I think, because my mom was okay with this, with this standard of eh, no romance, no, no real connection. We just kind of live our lives, um, which to me is sad, but they've made it work. Um, there's one thing, like one story that really sticks with me and I feel like really shaped some of my view of men going into the adult world is like right before college, my dad, I think was really unhappy. Um, my mom was just not really aware. I think of his unhappiness. She had a lot going on with my brother being ill. Um, but on their anniversary, he calls her at work, which was kind of unusual, but she thought he was calling to make dinner plans. But he's like, you know, I think we should just get divorced. <laughs> and it just really caught her off guard. And for him, it was just so matter of fact, like there, it wasn't like a, in his mind, it wasn't a mean thing. He thought this is just what you do when it's not working. And I mean, they are not divorced. They ended up just, my mom didn't want to, she just didn't want to. And so it just didn't happen. Um, but they're just weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for you as a teenager, let's just say your teenage years, who are you as a person? You know, do you have a lot of friends? What do you like? What don't you like? Just kind of paint us a picture of, of who you are in your teenage years. If you have any self-esteem issues or, or anything like that, um, at all, like pressures from society and in, in things along those lines. Yeah, I think that, you know, all that sensitivity really carried into my teen years. And I struggled with figuring out <laughs> all the normal teen stuff. Um, but I found my home in, in music. Like that was my weird people were the band geeks were my, my people. But I did struggle with my emotions. And a lot of times... Um, you know, my validation came from my relationships with guys when I was in high school. I felt like that is what gave me self-esteem. And still, I struggle to be alone. I have, like, had very little time in my life where I've just been single. And I don't know if that is because I just kind of, I don't know. So always searching for that healthy relationship or something, maybe. And did you have, like, a good group of uh, support from friends or no? I do feel like I always had at least one like core friend and I'm still that way in life. Like I'm more about quality than quantity when it comes to friendship. I'd much rather stay home like with one friend and just hang out. Um, but so, you know, I had at least like one bestie throughout at least every point in my life, whether they're like close in location, but so eventually you do get into a relationship, not the relationship that this story is about, but in that relationship, from what you wrote me, it sounds like, you know, that breakup kind of propelled you into the relationship that we're going to talk about. So what happened there? Yes, I think that context is important because my state of mind and my self-esteem was so just destroyed. Um, the ex before my narcissist was somebody I met at the end of high school. And he was just like, 
everybody wanted to date him. He was so cute and so funny and charming and like flirty. And when we were dating and it was like, to me, like, wow, he likes me. Like it just, it surprised me. Um, cause he just, he'd always, he liked so many girls, but he wanted to date me. And, and then like, once we started dating, it got really serious and he would say he wanted to marry me. It just, um, it got pretty serious pretty quick when we were only 19 or 18, 19, you know what I mean? Then he just kind of disappeared. We got into freshman year and I think he realized he didn't really want to commit to anybody. And we were, you know, going to different colleges, different locations. I wasn't living at home anymore. I was going to college three hours away and it really was devastating when he, he, we just didn't, I don't think he handled it. Well, I didn't handle it. Well, my reaction, I just shut down. So my mental state was not good. (laughs) When I met my narcissist, I was still kind of like pining over my ex and just distraught and turned it like, why, how, why did this happen? And my narcissist just was so validating of everything that I was saying. And he just let me talk. And this was just like the first night I met him. Um, we didn't start dating at that point. I, I just, the initial meeting of feeling so safe, like I could confide in this person because at that point I felt like I can't believe I'm so devastated by this person. I need to just get over this because I wanted to move on with my life, but I was just really distorted emotionally. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So here you are in a full transition, trying to get over the devastation of your previous relationship. And the future abuser in your life comes in as this shoulder to cry on. And here is someone that is listening to you. You're in this pretty vulnerable state. So your view of them is obviously going to be positive here from the get-go. So is he doing anything else for you like to be seen? And what else do you like about him? And what else are you learning about him in this process? I do feel like from the get-go, I could talk to him. And he he just had such an intelligence where the way we could communicate about certain topics, it just it intrigued me. Um, and that was something that was also very different from my ex. I would say that he was much more intelligent. And I just, so therefore his intelligence, I felt like gave him this authority to me. Like, wow, he's at least, I hate to say it this way, but like, at least on my level, but like, he also seems smarter. So I, I felt like I could look up to him, which is how I feel about my dad, actually. I do feel like my dad has not emotional intelligence, but he has intelligence that I look up to in a lot of ways. Um, he was very different from my ex, though, because he was not flirty. He did not get girls easily. He had, like, no game with girls because he's, like, nerdy computer science guy. Uh, we got along because of our interest in video games. Like, that's what drew us. And, like, smoking weed together, you know? <laughs> That, that was what we did in college a lot. So I said, you know, he's kind of a nerdy guy, but it's crazy how he actually was still at the center of his friend group. He grew up with a really solid group of friends that I don't feel like I see a lot in people. Maybe, I don't know, but they're all still friends today and they value their friendships. Like he just happened to find a really unique group of people. And maybe it's just where we happen to live. Um, but these guys just, um, I think they were a really good mask for him because, well, he was very intelligent. So I think smarter than these guys in some ways too. Um, so he could fool them easily and they looked up to him. So it gave him that validation. I think that he was always searching for he didn't have to flirt with girls because he got it from his friend group i think he got a lot of validation from just his intelligence so that was something his friends made him look more attractive to me because i felt like we just had so much fun 
I don't feel like he was quite the same person once we got to a different point in our lives where we were more isolated. Um, I feel like the love bombing phase really included that social group. And that's really what like drew me back to moving back to the area once, you know, we'll get further in the story of how we move away and come back. So at this point, the familiarity of your dad's intelligence plays a role. This person is looked up to by, you know, his friend group. They value his intelligence, as do you. And you're getting the opposite of the person that broke your heart. So this person feels safe. And when it comes to feeling safe, this person is the opposite of your ex when it comes to being a flirt or interacting with a woman. So does this play a big role as well? Absolutely. That, I think, was a big thing that I didn't have to worry about him flirting with anybody else because he only wanted to hang out with me. Like, he genuinely, we spent so much time together and he wanted to. And so I just, that was never a worry in my head. (laughs) So eventually you two move to a different state together. So what happens from here? Yes, that's when we uh, finished college and we moved away because I was going to grad school and we were moving to another state and we didn't want to break up, but, you know, you know, I wanted to do this program. So he was like, I can just get a job wherever. So he came with me. Um, I should say there's something very different about him and I in that, um, in our kind of careers and just kind of what we do, something I hadn't thought about until just now, but I'm somebody who in my career, I'm very accustomed to being like on the stage. It just was a part of my degree. And I feel like throughout college, before we moved, I was always kind of like, and he was so afraid of the stage or maybe not afraid just he wasn't comfortable in that zone but I just feel like I was almost like this weird not I guess trophy but just this thing to show off like oh look what she can do (laughs) she can play the piano cool um so maybe that's why he went with me to grad school but we didn't break up but that's when he started to become my whole world besides my program I mean he was the only one I came home to I had my friends, but after the grad program ended, it was just us because everybody else went away. Um, We stuck around that area for a little bit. That's when it was really just us. And at that point, we, well, I don't really know how we got to the point of getting married. To be honest, I feel like it was just because a ring became available or I don't know what was the motivation. I know I was really wanting to get married and I brought it up a lot for over a couple of years, but there was always this kind of like, He even said during an argument one time that he still wasn't sure. It was almost like a trial period still. And I just felt like if you don't know yet, then what are we doing? It was like seven years at this point um, of being together. And I felt like we're getting a little further into our 20s. Like this is, I know what I want. But we did, you know, eventually get married. And that's when the isolation from my family, I think really started to take place or at least getting to the point where I don't feel like I had anybody besides him and his friends, Um, which at the time they were my friends too. And his family, because we moved back to his family in our home state is their, their area, um, which is three hours away from where my family live in our home state. That's when I feel like nobody in my, my old world knew what was going on in my life anymore. So the overwhelm is something that took a long time to build up. And I didn't realize what's happening until I literally was at the point of pulling my hair out in frustration. And I was at the point of thinking that there was something wrong with me. I'm like, why am I getting this angry? It's like, if you're sitting in a pot, you know, like a lobster and it's slowly boiling, you don't realize you're cooking until it's too late. Um, that overwhelm took place little by little with little decisions, I feel like, over the years. Um, In college, we each had our separate places. But as we started to live together, I started to make a lot more decisions. And that's just kind of my personality. But I think he was very comfortable with not having to do anything. And eventually, it just became more and more where 
either he just let me do things or there was an excuse why I should do things where it was at the point, his only responsibility in life was to just go to work and make money and maybe like take the trash out and take the dog out, which maybe sounds like a lot because work can take up a lot of your life. But if you think about it, if you, even if you live alone, you also have to cook your meals. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to clean every once in a while. You have to do your laundry. You have to fold it and put it away. You have to make executive decisions about your life when it comes to your, ment- your, your physical health, your mental health, all these things. Eventually, you know, when it got to be at its worst, he wasn't even waking himself up in the morning. And I feared for not having income. So I was doing it for him. But that took a long time to get there. That didn't, I would never have signed up for a marriage if I knew it was going to be like that. It took a long time to get to that point. Little decision after little decision, I think. So here we are, a solid seven years and more into this relationship. You have these feelings of overwhelm. You aren't seeing it as abuse at all. You're also isolated, and that's hard to see as well as you're near his family and friends, and this really happened over time. His world became your world. His voice is this truth-telling voice. He's smart. It's difficult to see. And we've had survivor stories like this before where where the person who is the victim in this case is very agreeable and does things for the abuser. You stop conflict before it can even begin. And in your case, you might know that you don't like it, but you are just kind of going along. And it usually takes an event to happen in these cases where a no is heard for the first time or just something changes on how they are treated. And when it comes to your abusive husband, something that we have not mentioned yet is that your husband was the golden child in his family. His dad passed away when he was young and he was the center of attention for his mom and his two sisters and with his friends as well. He's used to being looked up to. They look up to him because he's so smart and he's a center of attention there too. And then all of a sudden you have a child with him and his life needs to change here in this spot and he's not the center of attention anymore. So what happens from here? Yeah, that's definitely when all my attention started to go towards my child from the beginning of the pregnancy. That's when I can pinpoint our fight starting to increase. And that's when I can pinpoint the like the mental load starting to become more of a thing, which is, and that's really what led to the overwhelm in a lot of ways. But um, I think that's also when his secret life really started was because I was so focused on getting ready for this baby that well, he could really do what he wanted. I have no idea what he was doing sometimes when I was so focused on whatever registry or that baby thing that we had to do. Um, But we would also fight about things that I felt like we should be making decisions on together and where I felt like I needed support. Like I would be really worried about like, well, okay, how is this going to work with my, my business and, and who's going to take care of the baby during these hours. And he'd be like, this is not my problem. He straight up said that at one point and I said, well, why is this only my problem? So that's where Now, in hindsight, I can see our expectations about our roles in marriage were very different. And we had, I guess, never communicated that with each other. But I I didn't realize he had such a, a rigid out like a rigid way of how our marriage was going to work in his mind um, and what things were my responsibility and what were his. Um, That's when it just, that became a little bit more obvious, but I also became more overwhelmed because as you know, my baby was born, I became more tired, (laughs) a lot more tired. I got no sleep. My child did not sleep. And by the time my child was, and I, I did all the night feedings. That's something that, I could have demanded more help, but there was the, you do it better and you do it so much easier. And it just made more sense. There were a lot of things that just made sense for me to do them, but you can't do all the things. It's just not possible. So I can take responsibility for not asking for more help, but at the same time, 
it's the other parent's responsibility to say, oh, this is my task. This is my task. That was kind of the normal stuff though, like normal problems. I feel like I see a lot of those seeds in every, in a lot of relationships where sometimes it just stays at that. And it's kind of like normal marital stuff. But then in my case, it really, it just didn't stop escalating. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, And there just no awareness of how things were escalating either. So once my kiddo was about a year old, that was when I was to the point of overwhelm of pulling my hair out. And I decided to seek therapy for myself. This was the first time in my life I'd ever sought help from a mental health professional, like for real, other than like college for a couple visits. But because um, I just felt like I was not well. And I didn't know how good that was going to be to have throughout this whole process, because I don't know if I didn't have her eyes in the situation, if we, if I, I don't know, it would have been very different. So as we go on in life, he, all these weird behaviors start popping up and I'll try to, there's so many details. So I'll try to just stick to the most important stuff, but a lot of odd behaviors, like um, he's pointing out a lot of bugs being present in our house and um, spending a lot of time researching problems with how to fix these bug problems. And then he starts accusing me of cheating a lot. It was to the point where he was accusing me of cheating with people. I didn't know like strangers we would go out to, we went out to this pumpkin festival and he was very convinced that the guy standing next to us was the person I was sleeping with. And I was like, I don't know this person. It was so out of the blue. Um, and at that point, I found out I was pregnant with baby number two, which wasn't um, exactly planned. So it was another, just another thing that added to the overwhelm of the situation. Which, funny enough, <laughs> that's the way he gaslighted me. I remember now, um, just, I remember the situation. He, he, he had me convinced that I wanted that. Like, this was your fault. Like you planned this. And I was thinking like, wait a minute. Like it got to the point I believed it, but I, I know that that was not intentional anyways. So he starts acting more aggressive and he just, he keeps throughout the day. This is during COVID time. So he's working from home. He just spends a lot of time coming down to disrupt me and my son while we're just trying to play and talk about all these accusations of me cheating. Um, he's spending a lot of time researching like mental health and talking about all the ways that I fit this and this and this diagnosis. He's gone through a lot of different things. He goes mostly back to borderline personality disorder which I've talked a lot about every single one of the diagnoses that he's given me with my therapist and none of them fit. <laughs> um, maybe the PTSD for sure, but uh, he, he likes to diagnose. And that's what he'd spend a lot of time talking about my family this way too. That was another way. He really did have me start to question my upbringing and that isolated me further during COVID times. I forgot about this, but the time when he started researching mental health stuff, it's crazy how he never pointed out anything in himself. It was all about pointing out the things in me that were flaws, all my mental health problems and my mom's mental health problems, <laughs> who she's just an anxious lady, but just things that were not just straight up not true. And she really, he really didn't know my mom, so it didn't make any sense. But he had, he just was so, he had such an authority to me because I loved him so much. Like I really genuinely did the person that I thought he was. I believed him. I mean, I stopped talking to my mom a little bit. because I was like, well, hold on a minute. I need to see if she's this awful person that he says she is. Um, so I started to really question if I should trust the things that my mom would say. Um, not so much my dad, but we didn't really communicate as much anyways. So that got me more isolated. Um, then his behavior started to just become straight up more violent. Like we would get into more fights, but he would get more intimidating. Like he'd get louder. I'd get louder. Then he'd get in my face. Um, unbeknownst to me, there were times where he would be secretly recording me. Like he would say really mean, hurtful things that had nothing to do with the context of the situation, but he knew it would be something that would push a button. 
to the point where, you know, I'd already be overwhelmed because I was pregnant and sick and like just not feeling good. And then he'd say that one thing that he knew would send me over the edge. And I'd flip out and say, I hate you. I, I, I hate you. Like, I hope you die. Like, I cannot stand this anymore. And he'd record that. So I straight up sounded like the crazy person for all of the situations that he recorded. But if you look at the context, I think maybe not everybody would react, react to that extreme, but a lot of people would react pretty big. The secret recordings, though, really started to mess with me because once I found out he was doing this, he would use this as kind of like a threat because there was one time he he went to his mom's with our son and he stayed the night and he wasn't coming home. He called my therapist because he was concerned. And so she called me all concerned as well. Um, just because I had yelled, I had yelled really loud as I stormed away and walked up the stairs. This was he, but he claimed that I was violent, which you can argue. Yeah, I guess is, is violent, but it wasn't towards him. And it, it wasn't in a manipulative or I wasn't going to hurt him. But he made it sound like I was a danger. And our our child was not in the house when I was yelling like that either. But he decided he was going to make sure that everybody was safe. And he was making all these plans about calling CPS. He'd also, um, he had this story about how at that time he was looking for the birth certificate because he was concerned for his child's safety. So he looked through my drawers and then he found my journal and I had an entry in there about being really upset and how I just felt like I wanted to punch him in the face. And reading that just validated every concern he had right there. Even though it was just a private thought, I was trying to vent, not something that I ever intended to do. But he, this is a, a theme throughout our story is that he will take something that I do and twist it in a way that just looks it's over exaggerated or it's not what is actually the intent behind it. Um, and he can twist things to make me look like the villain or he could at least up until a certain point where his mask totally slipped. So other things that have been going on here, you know, you're getting into arguments or power struggles over parenting styles and that provides uh, fights as well. You're being harassed throughout the day. You know, what are you hiding? You're being called the C word. And, you know, these things are being done in front of your child when you are trying to do things, you know, not in front of them. And he's saying that he's going to be, he's gonna always going to be threatening you, saying that he's going to be using things as evidence against you. So these things are, are, are going on. And in the history of the show, we've had many stories where the abuser is also an addict. And for your ex, you eventually find this out, which provides a whole new level of chaos and abuse. But it's also very confusing, and it can give excuses. So you were already overwhelmed as is, but now you're dealing with someone who is an abuser. And we're about to hear that they are going to have episodes of drug-induced paranoia or psychosis. So he's just a dangerous person to be around. So tell us about like the first big incident and how did you deal with all of this? So because in my situation, there was no abuse for so, so long. So it just looked like this is so out of character for this man. It really did look like just the drugs. And that's why so many people in the world that I was in, which was, you know, his, his, his people, nobody could imagine him ever doing something harmful to anyone, especially his wife, who he valued so much in their, you know, what they thought. Um, it just, they, so of course it's easy for them to just say it was just the drugs, but I know, I know that there were times when he wasn't on it, but also as the story continues, uh, let me just explain what happened. I was starting to suspect there was something going on because he would close the door a lot in his office. This was his office was his private zone where at one point he had a padlock on the outside and I wasn't allowed to go in there. There was one night I'll, I'm going to go ahead and tell this story just because to me, it's one of the most scary memories I have of the situation that I feel caught was the most dangerous night. Um, 
this night where my daughter was just a couple months old, still nursing. And I was really worried because at that point he had spent, he, he would stay up all night and, um, he wasn't really sleeping much. And I, he kept thinking that there was somebody in the house, somebody got to get him. And so I had my daughter in the bedroom with me and I was scared about my son because my, you know, my narcissist, he has uh, basically an arsenal in his office. He's a gun advocate. He loves his guns. And he would just threaten to start shooting next time he saw someone moving in the night. So I'm not going to have my two-year-old walking around in the middle of the night like he would often do. So I have my kids sleeping with me at that point. My daughter's two months old. I go settle her down and he comes and knocks on the door and says, something is wrong with our dog. You have to come check him out. And so I follow him to his office and there's no dog there. <laughs> so he closes the door and he like shoves something under it. So we can't, I can't get out. And he's like, I'm not letting him out until you listen to this. There's somebody here in the house. He spent a lot of time recording the people that he thought were there. This is what the drug does to people. But um, I, I just kind of froze. I didn't really know what to do, but I listened to it. And, you know, we thinking back is what still freaks me out because I'm like, if he had decided to just like grab his gun, like and start shooting, my kids were on the other side of that wall and just nobody would have known. But he, I listened to it. He lets me out and I run back into the bedroom and lock the door and he tries to break it down. I've got my daughter cause she's nursing and she was waking up trying to get her to go back to sleep. And he's like banging the door into her little head and he's like, fine, I'm just going to call the police. So he calls the police and I just like, I'm just in such a panic. I didn't really handle the situation like in a helpful way because I covered everything up for him when the police got there. I thought he was having a mental breakdown from stress at that point. I just, I had no idea why he was acting so bizarre and I had never seen anybody on crystal meth before. So I just, it didn't, the two things didn't come together in my head. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until after I think another week or so I left and I found out after that point, after I left that he had been using crystal meth for the last year and cocaine for like years before that. And all of that was just a secret life, just totally unbeknownst to me, spending lots and lots of money, just lots of secrets. And I'm sure there were more secrets I didn't know about either. Um, there were lots of accusations of me being like an escort and me being on OnlyFans, And those were things that I really didn't know anything about so I imagine he had probably a life in that world as well I don't know <laughs> so after realizing that he was an actual addict you still remained with him and why did you end up making this decision because in my head was okay this is a problem we can fix once he gets clean we're back to normal we're back to what we were it'll be fine so I trusted him and I came back after maybe a month and um, things were okay for a couple months. It felt like a honeymoon phase because things were better than ever. But then slowly his behavior started to shift a little bit. Like I could see just the tension in his body, but then he would, the question started again asking me about where I had been like, or why I was late or just little things of what I was doing with my time. Then the accusations about cheating again. So his abusive behavior started to escalate again, physically where he would get really intimidating again and back to getting in my face. And by that point I had learned how to gray rock and just not have fuel to the fire. I think that was my problem in the past of when things would get physically into like shoving matches between us is that I would get fiery and start pushing back. I would go into fight mode, but I didn't let it face me, but I did. I was scared because he still had all his guns and he was still just so controlling of everything I did. He, at that point by, 
I think it was August. He wasn't letting my son and I play through the day. Um, he wasn't letting me sleep because we'd always have things to discuss. Uh, according to him, he wasn't letting me eat because anytime we'd get to dinner and sit down, he would start playing those recordings of my meltdowns. He just wanted to have, wanted to just bully every me every moment of every day. So there was a time when I finally decided the guns have to go and he called the cops on me for that. He found out I was trying to remove them and called the police and they said, well, they were like, we can take them tonight, but he's just going to come get them. So finally we got his mom or his mom was going to agree to take them. So the cops were like, why don't you just let her take them? And those were taken from the house. Um, that was the second time the police were involved. The third time though, which really was like when I sealed the deal for myself, I knew after I called the cops, I wasn't going to be able to stay much longer. I, I called, it just, it felt almost like a normal fight, but like one we had every night, but it just, it was one of those where he was in my face and I was sitting down outside and he just wouldn't stop. He kept coming closer and just as loud as he could right in my face. And I said, if you don't stop, I'm going to call the police. And he just got closer and yelled louder. And so I did. Um, but I'm glad I did because after that, his his behavior did actually escalate the nights leading up to me actually leaving. Um, I had planned to rent an apartment, but I didn't even make it to the day when my lease started. I had to go stay with his mom because he got so upset about the fact I was actually leaving that, you know, he was like he threw a knife across the kitchen one night and he stormed after me when I tried to leave and like tried to push the door into me, but he blamed, he said, I was the one pushing the door. You know, he can twist things in his head to make it seem like I'm the one who's dangerous, which to me, looking back now, I realized like, oh man, I think at some point he probably would have told himself that I was coming after him and I may have been shot at some point. I don't know. That's just a theory I have. So at this point, everything is confusing. So are you looking for answers as to why he's acting this way? Why is he taking drugs? Or are you just trying to take care of you and figure out your own safety and the safety of your kids? No, I, I think that I still thought he was just struggling because of drugs. And I was like, and my therapist is just like, well, whatever reason it is, he's still treating me this way. And this is dangerous doesn't even matter what the reason is you got to go um no it took me so so long to recognize that this person that I married is not the person in reality like it it's still even this happened this week I will have little itty bitty blips of time where I will be like maybe he's not so bad maybe this is actually just mental stuff like mental illness or neurodivergence or you know there's an excuse for this behavior he's not actually so bad but then he will prove it with his behavior that actually he does intend to hurt and that's the intention whatever their intention is that's what really counts for something i think is are you trying are you really trying to hurt somebody so other things going on are that he has been smearing your name to his friends and they are his enablers. And he has these recordings of you for his proof. And it just makes things difficult as far as support goes. And let's just go back for one second to this knife throwing incident where he throws a knife across the table. You end up staying with his mom after this. And she is also an enabler. So what happens from here? I, I ended up staying in his mom's place, which was super weird. And <laughs> somehow she's stuck with, she has been involved in my life all the way up until now, which we are a year out from when I left and it has been super uncomfortable, but I finally actually had to put up a boundary there and I no longer lend her in my house because it's just, it's too complicated. It's, she's an enabler to the extreme. I mean, she maybe doesn't have an awareness. I, I don't, she just has blinders on. I, I don't think I'd want to see my son as somebody who could do that, but it's just too much stress to have to deal with her. So I don't allow her in my house at this point. 
Um, I moved into the one bedroom apartment though. At first we were going to try to work out some kind of co-parenting thing, but he, I don't think he really believed I was going to leave. I don't, I just think he thought it was a matter of time before I was going to come back or something. But after I think a week or so, not even, he started throwing tantrums again and sending me long ranting text messages. He would send them to his mom. He would send them to my mom, to my sister. He'd send them videos of our fights, of my meltdowns, trying to just a smear campaign. Um, he, one weekend, he, his mom said he sent her about 50 text messages about why he should get his guns back. And he just wore her down to the point where she said, fine, come get him. Um, and then that same weekend, he was also sending me text messages about the guns and about how he was going to be coming to pick the kids up on Monday after work and they better be ready to go. And I called my lawyer and I said, what can I do? <laughs> like this, I don't feel safe. He can't just take them and have his guns like this. Like we need somebody to have eyes on the situation. I don't know that he's even clean. Um, but that's when she said, just, you got to get the CPL. I went to the, the DV shelter and they helped me fill out the paperwork and I was granted an emergency CPO civil protection order, which he, you know, he was stripped of his parenting rights. And that was almost a year ago. That was October 31st last year. So we are getting to the point where it's going to expire soon. So we're getting to um, a point where I imagine our next hearing, we're going to address the CPO. So after I got the CPO, which is, totally twisted around in his head he sees that you know not as a way of protecting me and the kids it's a way of i took the kids away from him you know when in reality i went in front of a magistrate and i said this is what happened and they they made the decision but him mom his sisters i imagine his friends you know he's convinced everybody that i've taken the kids away from him when in reality you know, the day that I got the CPO, I also wrote in the kids are to have visitation with him every week at the local DV shelter. Like I set up, set up parenting time for him from the get go. So I was never taking the kids away. I mean, obviously you guys know that, but, <laughs> um, I just, it, it's just amazing to me how him and his people, how they can twist this around after everything that happened. Like meth and guns, how can I not have a CPO in this situation just to clarify that he's clean, which to, to still to this day, he's actually fighting taking a drug test to prove his sobriety, which is a little fishy in my mind because he wants to have unsupervised time with them, with them at this point. But I said, that can't happen until you prove that you're clean. We need you to take a hair follicle test to prove your sobriety. And he says it's not worth the money. <laughs> so I feel like at this point, I just got to keep going with making sure my kids are okay, making sure my situation is okay. And hopefully his behavior is going to show himself. I, you know, I know the courts, their hands are tied with certain laws. That's my struggle. Yes, he may have done really dangerous drugs and did a lot of abusive stuff, but there's not like any like not a lot of laws he broke like legally they can't prove a lot of stuff so the guardian ad litem in our case is vouching for him to have unsupervised time proven he's sober so i don't know if everybody gets exactly how dangerous i think he really could be i do think that the drugs were fuel on the fire in his circumstance but the fact that he still will do manipulative things he will still like now after the cpo happened the financial support just stopped if he really cared about his kids he would have continued to put money in the joint account so that it would have not continued to overdraft i mean obviously that was a way to get at me but it it only hurts his kids it only hurts them because then his son couldn't go to preschool because we couldn't afford it anymore now that i have child support I feel like we're bouncing back a little bit, but it took a long time to get there. Besides that, though, he has continued to use his mom, <laughs> who at first was my only way of getting childcare because I couldn't afford extra. 
Um, I didn't have anybody else in town I could ask for help and she's around. So she's been the main childcare I've had so that I've been able to work um, the little bit that I, that I can work. I'm fortunate my job, I'm able to make enough with just a little bit of work time, but um, without her, I wouldn't have been able to keep my business up. I don't, I really don't know how I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I had to keep her in my life over this last year until just now where I've been getting child support and I can pay for childcare outside of her. But she would do things like um, take pictures of my court documents, even though I would say, you know, this isn't something you can take. You, you can't share this with you're not even supposed to look at this stuff. But I, you know, I catch her taking pictures of them. Um, so I learned to just hide my things away. I accommodate her because I needed the help. I really did throughout this last year. Um, but then it got to a point where she was doing things like bringing me his bills. And I'd say, no, this isn't how we're supposed to handle it. I think we need to go through our lawyers and the mail bills that were addressed to him. And when I would say, no, don't give them to me, then she'd start sneaking them in my house and I'd try to give them back. And she'd say, no, I'm not going to be involved. <laughs> and so I just sent them back through the post office, but then she put them in my kid's duffel bag when she'd hadn't send them home from a sleepover. So I just have to keep sending them through the post office, I guess. So I finally said, you know what? I don't want you in my house anymore. I don't know how to make this any clearer. I don't want you involved. <laughs> um, but that kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit because now I have less support until I'm able to hopefully move home. So, you know, Within your relationship, you have these two different relationships. You have this first period where isolation is going on, you don't notice. And then you have the escalations point, escalation points of first child, second child. And things just seem like they dominoed, like a waterfall kind of happened at that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it became more of a whirlwind of of abuse where you're overwhelmed, not able to catch your breath on, on what's happening. You might have a reprieve here or there, but when the relationship ends to this point, you know, of getting CPOs and, you know, how are you feeling after the relationship ends and in this part right here, because it seems like you didn't have time to catch your breath with what had happened to even make sense of what happened. So now you kind of hit a spot here and maybe that spot is here talking to me or just before talking to me within the last few months of really understanding what happened and also getting a calm as far as you being balanced or a sense of your feelings. And I know that's a lot of questions that was took a long period of time to ask um or i just would anyway so how do you how, how are you feeling about everything that's happened in that sense i think you're right that i haven't had time to really process this until about now i think the only reason i'm getting a chance to process this now is because i'm able to afford more child care to get these breaks i have had to just go and i've been burnt out just constant burn, just constant. I mean, I get very few chances to take a break. And when I do, it's such an effort to get that break because I either have to, or I have to take my kids to my mother-in-law's for a break, which, you know, I don't want to be in contact with her, or I have to take them all the way to my parents a few hours away. So it's just a lot of effort to get that break or money. <laughs> I think as far as how I've been feeling though, like I, I notice little bubbles of grief that still come up. Like even now, I think I, I, there's a lot of grief that hasn't been processed um, because I've had to keep going, but I do feel like a lot of my grief actually happened in the midst of everything falling apart. So in some ways I feel really and a good stage with where I am emotionally when it comes to the relationship. I know like this person's not for me. I know that I'm, I'm happy with myself. I don't need somebody else to make me happy. Like I am enough. My kids are my, that they're the purpose that I have right now. 
but there's a bigger purpose beyond just my kids. Even I think I'm in a good spot, but it's taken me like this whole year of crashing to find a lot of answers. to a lot of questions I've had my whole life even, but it made me think all this time this last year, suddenly he has not been the center of my attention. I have been, I mean, my kids have been, but also I've actually had some time, some time to look at myself. You know, when my kids are in bed, I get to discover what I actually like, like just look inwards at myself and I get to be the center of attention a little bit. When was the last time you were able to be the center of attention for yourself? Um, I feel like grad school maybe was a, was a time where I had more, I was very, I was more focused on me and I wasn't concerned about him as much where I felt like he was kind of along for my ride. And then after that world disappeared, I just, I think I kind of lost that structure that I needed. And so he became the thing I could focus on. How long ago was that? So we're coming up on, um, it's been about nine and a half years since I graduated. That's a long time. Almost a decade. It's a long time. Sad. Yeah. 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 I think I have some grieving to do so, to be honest, but I need time to do that. Right. Like I would love to have a weekend where I'm allowed to just cry. (laughs) I know that sounds probably really strange, but like when I have time to myself now, I'm like, I don't really have time to cry because I have to catch up on all the things that have to be done when I don't have my kids, you know? So just having the time to cry is huge. And I'm really happy that you get that time to cry because I want to point out that you are a single mom. And for all the single moms out there, just like Madison a lot of the visitation with the abuser is very brief. It's every two weeks a lot of the times. And you're doing all of the work in comparison to them. And it's not being recognized. It's maddening and it's frustrating. It's tiring and it's exhausting. And the abuser's not seeing what you're doing. They're only seeing what they're not getting in most cases. There's zero recognition for everything you do from cooking, getting the kids to school, extracurriculars, baths, reading books, getting them to bed, entertaining them, listening to them, laundry, and the list can go on and on and on as it did, you know, for Madison, you know, now Madison's getting a time to cry and getting some time here to, you know, heal a little bit. So I guess tell us a little bit about your uh, healing process, Madison. So that's something that I'm very appreciative of with this situation. That's the thing, I don't know. The silver lining I keep trying to focus on because this has been so hard, but I'm like, at least I have so much more awareness of my own behaviors, my own life. And I would not have figured that out had I not gone through this and found my therapist, you know, found all this support that I've had in the mental health world. So I feel like I'm on the right track when it comes to healing. I'm, I still feel like I'm in survival mode. I want to be thriving, but I, I can see that happening with different circumstances. So I'm just crossing my fingers. I get to move soon. <laughs> and have you been able to um, find your own friendships again or rekindle friendships and get support that you needed from people in your past? Yeah, it's, you find, it's like um, when you're a kid. And you are crafting with glue and glitter, you know, and you like put all the glue on the page and then sprinkle the glitter and you dust it all off and you see what sticks. Like those friends from my past that are still there, that stuck, those are the genuine people in my life. And those are the people that are worth my time and my energy when I give it to them. Um, Like my roommate from college, uh, my sister, my best friend from high school, like people they, you know, I can text them whenever and just, I don't have, and they know that I don't have to check in all the time. It's just, they're, they're on, they're there for me. So the other people disappeared though. And it's amazing how a situation like this will show you what, who the genuine people are in your world. And what's left in the divorce? What's left to do? 
So we're coming up on a hearing that in his eyes is going to determine like just the visitation schedule as far as life where we are right now. I'm going to bring to the attention of the court that this is really a hard situation for the kids to be in because I'm only one person that I can provide better circumstances. If we were able to go where my family lives and get some more support, um, you know, it, uh, he still needs to prove that he's clean. <laughs> That's the first step in, in changing any kind of parenting time for him. And I think the court is on board with that, but I might still be here for a little bit until our divorce is finalized. Um, but I don't know when that will be. <laughs> we we have to figure out the house, our marital house. He still lives in that. And I know he wants to sell it. And I'm fine with that. I we I think are both on board with wrapping this up quickly. Because he has fully discarded me. Fully. I mean, this was something that I hear a lot about other people being discarded and then they get hoovered back. There wasn't, I have no, there's no hoovering. He does not want me. And that's, I mean, that's okay, but it still hurts, you know? So. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? I think the most important thing is to look for those seeds that come before abuse. Like, look at the qualities of how a person interacts with strangers. Are they kind to people? Do they get road rage? Do they get angry at random strangers while you're in the car? You know, do they think that everybody's out to get them? Um, do they have an attitude that they are superior to others? And why? You know, what is the intention behind their behavior? Is it to exert power? Is it about control? And sometimes control isn't always about power. I think that control can sometimes be about anxiety, like things like that. Like I know that I struggle with, I want a lot of things to be in my control because I struggle with a lot of anxiety. So therefore he's been able to say, oh, you're a narcissist because you want everything in your control. And I think that the intent behind someone's behavior and their actions is really what needs to be looked at. So I see these seeds in other people's relationships, just friends I've made in the community and just people I know. And I just, I don't know. I just hope these people have awareness. So Madison, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today, being a guest on our show. We've had a few stories like yours where the relationship was going on for a while until the abuse could be seen. And then an event needed to happen that kind of created everything. And then things started to, you know, crater from, from there. And I'm just really happy that you came on the show today and that, your healing process has started. I know that probably more of your healing process can occur after the divorce is finalized and custody could be finalized as well. And who knows if that'll happen soon or, or later on, but we'll have you on uh, again to give us a follow-up of, of what happened in, in the aftermath here of your story. But just a really big thank you for coming on the show and sharing with us and uh, helping everyone uh, who's going through the same thing as you are and validating their experience. So just a really big thank you uh, for being here with us today. Thank you. That's why I did it. Well, thank you once again, Madison, for being here. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our Survivor Stories like Madison was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences with all of them, and you can make friends too. So if you need support, join our support group today. 
And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies. No matter how big or small the town you are in, domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to domesticshelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. They are currently only in Canada, but they are looking to expand into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety and get all of your things out of your home and into storage. All of your belongings into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization, so if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode, today's survivor story. And from myself and Madison, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>